This is Bradley. Hello? Hi, Bradley. How are you? It's Andrew from PhotoBizX. Yes. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Good, mate. I actually thought it was a, uh, a voicemail recording. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I should take that. Maybe it's a compliment. <laughs> I was waiting for it to keep going, and then I was waiting for the beep. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I could ever duplicate that. <laughs> that was very good. Very good. Are we doing this over the phone or on Skype? I'm easy either way. The phone works fine for me. I've, I've had mixed success with Skype. Okay, sure. Are you really hiding away in the car? I really am. Why? I actually, what I did was, as a safety measure, I drove to a nearby lake. So not only do I have privacy, but I have an inspiring view. And I thought that would be a good combo because I have three children and the youngest is technically still two for a few more days. And so the likelihood of an uninterrupted conversation would be significantly higher in this scenario than if we were doing this at home. I love it. It's very cool. All right, mate. Is there anything that you particularly want to talk about or want to avoid in this conversation? No, I'm pretty much open to anything. I think we talked about, um, you know, I'm more interested in talking about, you know, the business aspect of it and creativity and, you know, the work involved and, you know, those sort of things and workshops I have strong opinions about. I don't mind talking about gear or what works for me, but, you know, I'm not interested in doing free ads for Fuji or anybody else. But, you know, I do use their stuff and I'm happy with it. But I just think a lot of those, I guess some of those sort of promoted photographer things have kind of backfired a little bit for people like Sony and Fuji in particular, where new products come out and then the people that review them are more professional bloggers than they are photographers and they have very little negative to say, you know, so it's impossible to really figure out how someone really feels about something because they're treading such a fine line. For sure. I totally get that. And that's one of the things, isn't it? If you're getting gear for free or you're getting paid by a manufacturer of something, then you feel obliged to say good things about it. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've probably had eight to 12,000 people looking at an article I wrote about my experience. Transition from, you know, it was titled My Three Years with the Fujifilm X series, but it was really more about my transition from, you know, a kid fascinated by photography to where I came, how I got started and working in a professional lab and then how I got into the business professionally, kind of in a backward sort of way or more of an accidental sort of way. And then I talked about why the Fujifilm system works for me, but I tried not to have it be too much like an advertisement because they have plenty of people on their dole doing that. Are you one of the Fuji X photographers? I am not. I have a number of people that have asked me privately, you know, if I am or assuming that I am and I'm not, I think just because of that article. And then I wrote a review of another product, like a lens adapter for the X100 series. And then I was involved in a photography collective called the X100C, which was designed specifically around professional photographers who use the X100 series for work. And then the guy who ran that, who was a wonderful gentleman from France, ended up getting a different job. Like he got promoted in his you know, day-to-day job and just didn't have the time to do it. And it was unfortunate because I thought it was great. And it was cool because we had like monthly assignments and then we would do, you know, photo essays and we would occasionally do product reviews. But every week we had what was called weekly inspiration. 
And so we would post photographs that we took and then, you know, just anyone in the world could post their photographs to that, that particular group's Facebook page. And then we would, as a group would vote on them and decide which ones we liked. And then we would publish all of them. And I thought that was a great idea. And I wish that could have continued, but it just was too much time. And so it really needed a single guy with no kids to run it. And I don't know if any of us really fit that bill. Is that site still going? And was that supported by Fuji or you guys just came in and did it off your own bat? No, what's funny is a lot of people thought it was an official Fuji thing or that it was somehow connected to them, but it wasn't. And unfortunately, the site might still be up. Well, the site might be down, the Facebook page is still up, but unfortunately, none of us are doing it anymore because we just, it needed a ringleader and that ringleader was Patrice and he did a, an amazing job and he did the layout and he coordinated everything and it's, you know, pretty close to a full-time job and just without him doing it, it just wasn't, we were all, the rest of us, I think, were too busy to kind of take the reins and so it sort of died and that's unfortunate, but work has to come first for sure this is the photo experiment podcast brought to you by photo x this is the photography experiment podcast episode number 11 and today's interview is brought to you by shotkit.com it's the website where you can go to discover the camera gear of the world's best photographers But really, that is only half the story and a part of what you'll find over at shotkit.com. I can't wait to share a little bit more with you about the site and what you can find there later in the show. Uh, Today's guest is Bradley Hansen from the States, if you haven't guessed. He started out shooting headshots for models and musicians before getting some work at the weekly newspapers. He added weddings to his repertoire in 1999, and although he's based in Minneapolis, He has shot all over the world and his work, it's been featured in more publications than we have time to list and it's the same for his awards. They are so numerous. In regards to his style, it seems black and white is his thing and I'm wrapped to have him with me today. Bradley, welcome, mate. Thank you. Nice to be here, virtually. (laughs) Yeah, from the car by the lake. (laughs) I will pretend you're a few feet away. We're looking at each other with headphones. (laughs) All right. I'm there with you. I'm thinking the same thing. Mate, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show, it was from an email that you sent me and we were talking about having you on the show and about this particular show. And you said someone needs to be open and honest about the excess of workshops and that they are cash cows for those giving them and borderline useless for the participants looking for easy answers. That's pretty full on. Was that me? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like something I might have said. Well, yeah, we can start there. I think one of the biggest challenges for new photographers or photographers who feel like they're stagnating is this sort of sensation that there's, uh, I think that a myth of overnight success, I think maybe is the best way to, to think about it. Like there's some magical formula way of doing things and way of shooting and gear that I should use and, you know, process that will enable me to be successful overnight. And I think, you know, I know that there are people out there doing workshops that actually provide useful information and they are helping get a new batch of photographers. 
ready for the job, which is mostly business. It's not shooting. You know, being a professional is business. It's not just shooting. And I think that's what it looks like to people on the outside. But I can touch on that later more. But the problem that I see with the workshop industry is there are tons of people doing it who are more networking people and people that have great people skills and are more professional bloggers than they are professional photographers. And so I think what happens with a lot of the workshops is they're designed to help the photographer giving the workshop make money rather than the participants. And so, you know, I kind of feel like it's something that photographers do. And again, there are exceptions, but it's something that photographers do when their business is sort of stagnating because if they were shooting because they love shooting and they were successful at doing it and all the things that they're trying to tell their students, then the likelihood of them needing to do the workshop is, is not very high. You know what I mean? I do, yeah. I totally get where you're coming from and what you're saying there and do agree with it too to some degree. What about the photographer that says, you know, I've got a big following, you know, they are successful, they are booking weddings, but they feel like they just want to just teach. You know, that's one of the things I hear. I love to teach. I want to teach. That's where I get my buzz. Well, I think that's a valid, you know, that's a valid observation. And there are people that love teaching and there are people that are great at it. You know, I have a little brother who teaches English all over the world. And, you know, that's something that he's great at. It really takes someone with that approach to, I think, really do a good job with it. Because I think the way I see it played out and again, you know, for people that are doing it, more power to them. But I see a lot of people going, they're essentially funding trips to exotic locations by promising the participants that they're going to learn these great insights. And so like, let's say I wanted to go to, you know, somewhere in Europe and I wanted to go there rather than pay for it myself, I can get 10 students to each pay $2,000, you know, I fund my trip, I make a nice little profit. And then just there's sort of an intrinsic inspiration by virtue of being somewhere new. So I think what you're saying about people being good at teaching or getting their sort of satisfaction from bringing that excitement to someone, I think that I'm sure that happens, but I just think that's the exception rather than the rule. So again, I'm not universally against workshops. I just think that a lot of them are designed more to be profit makers for the person doing them. And in fact, my wife sent me a link just yesterday about a teaching opportunity. And it's something that I haven't followed up on because I honestly don't have the time, but it's not something that I'm against. And I think if it were something in a setting, like there's a great place here called the Minneapolis Photo Center. And they have, like, they rent dark rooms, they rent cameras, they have a wonderful gallery. And I saw that Vivian Meyer exhibit there. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yes, yeah. That's the nanny. Yo, really wonderful stuff. Like, just really nothing like it in terms of the, the you know, this unknown person having this vast library of unpublished work. You know, that place has great teachers and they do workshops and they have contests. And, you know, I think that, seems to really be a good way to stoke creativity. But teaching and photography are very different skills and there are, you know, being good at both is, is a challenge. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. No, no, you, yeah, you did, you did. But you know what, maybe it sparks another one, which I'm going to throw at you. And, you know, I understand that 
as a photographer, I can go to a workshop and learn business because you know, it's numbers, it's marketing, it's advertising. Someone can show me the copy. They can show me how to create the ad. They can show me whether I'm profitable or not with the way I have my price list set up. What about the photographer that wants to go and learn how to, to shoot better, to be more creative, to see differently? Is that the sort of thing you think can be taught at a workshop? I don't know if it can be taught fully. I think that that spark can be placed in people, and I think that in itself can be valid. I guess maybe one way to think about it is what works for me might not necessarily work for you. We're all different. You know, we come at problems and creativity and solutions in very different ways. And so what worked for me, and I've actually, I did do a workshop in 2004, 2003. You went to one or you ran one? I went to one with my favorite photographer, who uh, someone that I considered my greatest inspiration, who's Ralph Gibson. He's a photographer based in New York, and he still lives there, and he's still doing amazing work. He was probably the single biggest influence on me being excited about photography. Like I remember, so what happened for me, you know, years and years, like 20 years before this workshop, what inspired me was I found one of his books at an art museum and I bought it and, you know, it was all super high contrast, black and white, grainy, you know, triax film developed in Rodinal, everything shot with a 50 millimeter like a lens, you know, very close up, a lot of details, very compositionally based, you know, a lighting master, relatively abstract. And that was the thing that really planted that, I don't want to keep saying seed, but planted the idea in my head that photography was not only an art form, but the thing that I wanted to pursue. So, you know, it's entirely possible that someone could have that sort of exact epiphany, you know, going to a workshop, but it's a different set of parameters. The person giving the workshop has an agenda and that agenda might be completely in line with yours, or it might be entirely designed around, you know, what that person wants to talk about and it might not connect with you at all. So it's difficult to say. Let's take Ralph's workshop that you went to. So you bought his book and you were inspired by him. And this is how many years ago? Did you say 20 years ago? Well, I bought his book, I would say it was probably 1987. And I didn't, <laughs> I went to the workshop and it was actually, I was living in Seattle and I was shooting a wedding on the day that it was in Seattle. So I did the workshop in Vancouver, BC. And so that would have been, I think, 2003. And essentially what he did was the first day we had introductions. We sat down. He went over everyone's portfolio, which was very intimidating, you know, because things that people say, especially if it's someone you respect, can really, you know, echo in your head, especially if they're, it's something you don't want to hear. But luckily I got a, a nice review and, and it was flattering. But what the bulk of the workshop was, we would be in scenarios with models and they were, you know, it was mostly nude models and then doing stuff on location. And then we would shoot, everyone at the time was shooting film. So we shot film, we would develop the film and then we would do, he would do a contact sheet review the next day. And then he would look at our work and then give us, you know, comments or criticism or suggestions. And then the bulk of it was him telling stories, but because he is a 60-year-old man who had a very interesting life, 
His father assisted Alfred Hitchcock in Los Angeles in the, I think the late 30s, or early 40s. And then he moved to San Francisco and then New York, I think in the 60s or 70s. Just, you know, very fascinating life. And so, and I think he spent some time in the U.S. Navy where he actually started as a photographer. So he had an interesting life. And so a lot of the workshop was just him telling stories. But I was interested in those stories. I don't know if that was true for everybody. But, you know, because I was already deeply connected to his work, it was fascinating to me. If I had come in there cold and just paid, I don't even remember how much it was, but if I had paid that amount and just had, you know, suggestions on our contact sheets and heard his stories, I don't know if it would have been the same experience if I didn't already have that interest in his work. Okay. Well, when you booked in to go and do that workshop, you knew his work. He was an inspirational figure for you. What were you expecting to get out of the workshop? What were you going to it for? I think in my mind, I still probably had, and I was actually, I was running a successful business at that time. So it wasn't about finding a secret to success because at the time I already had more work than I knew what to do with. I think what was going on in my mind at the time was I felt like I wanted to move in a a very, I think maybe selfish is the wrong word, but a very personal inspired direction and do something different in the industry that hadn't been done. And I felt like, I think that I felt like because I had so much work that I was probably feeling a little stagnant. And I think that happens to everybody in any line of work, but especially with photographers where, you know, the shooting itself is almost always fun depending on the client, but you know, the real work is the behind the scenes stuff in front of the computer. And so I think, but at the time I was shooting all films. So I think I just wanted to get us um, a look behind the curtain at, at a genius or someone I consider to be a genius and a photographic master, you know, one of the handful of greats and people that I really respected and just to see if I could get any kind of any insight into the creative process. And I feel like I did, but not necessarily through the curriculum. It was more through, you know, hearing him talk. And what was funny is he would actually, at one point he brought a guitar. And so while we were shooting, he would just play guitar. And I I thought that was great. You know, it was great. So we were in these beautiful locations shooting nude models and he was playing guitar. Like it was sort of, I felt like I got my money's worth, you know? Well, okay, let me throw an example at you then. Let's say... I'm contradicting myself a little, aren't I? Well, yeah, but I don't want to throw you under the bus or let's say two-man studios because they just announced a bunch of workshops around the world. It's sold out, I think, in an hour and they're all in exotic places. It fits the perfect profile that you described how you could go and see the world and have it paid for. If I was at that workshop and... Lanny or Erica pulled out a guitar and started playing while I was shooting. I'd be thinking what you said in the beginning, like, this is a joke. I'm paying for their holiday. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, you know, it depends entirely on your feeling about that person and whether or not they're an artist or whether or not they're a business opportunist. And I didn't feel like, you know, this was a money grab. I felt like it was, you know, he likes to talk and there were stories that I was interested in, but I think that the main difference now is, you know, keep in mind, this was 2003 and I started shooting weddings in 99 and this was well before social media. The internet was, you know, I remember even when I had my website, my first website in 99, 
what was funny now to think about, but a lot of photographers didn't even have websites. So I booked a lot of work by virtue of having a website, which is so funny to think about now. But I think the difference between maybe some of the things that were going on for workshops then versus now is a lot of photography, a lot of workshops, a lot of, you know, Instagram trends and, and Facebook and, you know, blogs and everything. It feels a lot more like, I think it's easy to look at it from the outside and say, this looks like a popularity contest. And the people who are getting the big audiences are the people that can do workshops because it's going to be much easier for them to fill the seats than someone who might be a great photographer and someone who might be actually be you know, a wonderful teacher or someone who can inspire creativity, but doesn't have the social media savvy or, you know, the constant desire and need to promote themselves. And I think that there are wonderful people, you know, there's the full spectrum. There are talented people who are great at promoting themselves. There are talented people who have no work because they don't understand business. There are terrible photographers who are wonderful at promoting themselves. And there are terrible photographers who are just bad at everything. So those four groups, you know, are probably the full spectrum, like maybe looking at it as more of a, a, a square rather than a, than a linear equation. I don't know if that makes It does. Sense. It does make sense. You know what? And I think what I'm taking away from what you're saying is, you know, I can go and learn to be a better photographer. For someone who's producing photography that I admire, they don't necessarily have to be great at business or social media. I just have to admire their photography. But don't go there to learn business from that person. Just like I shouldn't go and try and learn business from someone who's just good at social media. Would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's accurate. And everyone has their own niche, you know, like I've been doing this now for 17 years and I wouldn't feel comfortable telling someone, you know, doing a workshop on the business aspect, but I feel like I could say what works for me, but that has evolved and that's really changed. I do feel like I could tell people how I shoot and I kind of do that, you know, in my blog and articles that I've written. And so I don't really know if I have a whole lot of secrets to divulge. But, you know, everyone has their own thing that they're good at. And I think if people go into these things expecting, you know, to have this sort of aha moment where everything in their life falls into place. And then, you know, a few weeks later, they're, you know, shooting magazine covers and, you know, booking 40, 50 weddings a year. I don't think that's a realistic expectation. I think most workshops are geared toward the mindset of trying to get, you know, a sort of secret formula of how things might get better. And, you know, the desire to search for creative inspiration is a wonderful thing. Now, what works for me is looking at books and I don't look at wedding photography. I mean, I see it and I look at it when I'm, if I'm in a magazine, I'll, I'll flip through it. But honestly, most of the things that I see, you know, on everything, and I don't want to sound like a curmudgeon, but like most of what I see, and this is true of every industry, is most of what I see is not inspiring. You know, so I look at the photographic masters you know, people like Elliot Erwitt, Cartier-Bresson, Ralph Gibson, you know, all the Magnum photographers, you know, Robert Frank, people like that, like people who are just photographing life and the, a lot of that stuff that sort of turned into what people now call street photography. 
you know, interesting things that are happening in real time. And that's the kind of stuff that inspires me. And that has a huge reason, or that is a huge reason why I shoot the way I shoot is that I bring that to weddings. And so I think because I don't have a canned approach where I have a template that I apply to every, you know, every event that I shoot, it would be much, I don't know if I have any easy answers for anybody. Mm -hmm. So when you look at books, you know, from those masters or even websites, you know, from the photographers that you mentioned, the Magnum photographers and Elliot Erwitt and Cartier Brisson, do you look at their work and then how do you use it? How do you use that in real life to make your photography better? Well, some of it is just on an emotional level, you know, like it makes you feel something just the way like, you know, I chose to park in this particular location because I like what I'm looking at. If something elevates your mood, you're more likely to want to keep doing it. And so anything that you consider inspiration is positive and anything that you can channel into your work that makes you feel good and allows you to look at the world in a different way is very positive. When I was looking at those books when I was young, you know, like, in my late teens, when I first started shooting, I was shooting for my high school paper and the yearbook and things like that. When I looked at those photographs, I would look at it more technically, you know, and I would still have an emotional reaction, of course, because I, the technical things were more new to me. But I would look at them like, what is the photographer's relationship to the subject? What lens is he using? What focal length is this? How far away is he from the subject? Where's the light source? Would it have been improved if he had moved? a few degrees this way or that way, you know, I took them apart. That's a lot how I learned in the same way that let's say I was learning how to play guitar. If you listen to music and you figure out what someone's doing by doing it by ear, that's a great way to learn. And that's a very different way of learning than sitting down with someone who giving you lessons and saying, play this note and play this chord. You know, if you're doing photography, having someone sit down with you, well, it's funny now that we talk about it. I have given private lessons to people, but I started with a very technical aspect. So I would sit down and explain things that were inspirational to me, but then I would also describe the relationship of shutter speed and aperture. And I think the value to that is understanding. I mean, first you have to create some emotional response, you know, and that's the real value of photography. So Emotional for you or for the viewer? Well, both. The photographer needs to satisfy his or herself, but also you need, in order to book work, because that's the goal of a professional, is you need to not only inspire yourself, but you need to create work that inspires other people to hire you. So you create your work, you put it up on the website, and then people who come to you based on, you know, and I tell this to the people that are looking to hire me, I put up the kind of work that resonates with me. And if people come to me based on what I've you know, put up in my portfolio, we're likely to have a good fit because they already know how I see the world and they're not going to ask for very straightforward, conventional head to toe color shots. They're not going to have that. They have a different set of expectations. You know, you're talking about being influenced by these, these masters and looking at their photo books and their images. I guess what I am curious about, let's say, let's take one of Cartier-Bresson's photos, the man jumping across the puddle. You know, it always gets featured as that decisive moment. You know, do you see things like that and then go and try and replicate them? No, but, you know, what's funny is, well, just as a bit of trivia, that's the only photograph of his that I believe was cropped. Oh, is that right? Yeah, if you look at his work, all of it has that black border, which is the edge of the frame. And I've not seen a print of that particular 
photograph that you're describing, which is probably his most well-known shot. In fact, I had a client who had a print of it, and it was amazing. But it doesn't have those black edges. But I think, you know, the thing with to talk about the parallels again between music and visual medium, when you listen to music, you can't unhear it. You know, so just recently we had, um, there was a lawsuit. I don't know if you were following this, but the British band Led Zeppelin was accused of borrowing the introduction from Stairway to Heaven from a group called Spirit, who I don't remember if it was five or 10 years earlier had done a very similar introduction. Now, let's say the people in Led Zeppelin had heard that song and maybe not deliberately borrowed it, but were, you know, there are only so many ways to arrange notes and it got stuck in your head, whether you want it to or not. And maybe it came out, you know, a similar way, whether or not it was a direct, you know, imitation is not something that I want to weigh in on, but with photographs, when you're looking at things, there's no way to unsee them. And the more visually astute you are, the more likely they are to stick with you, especially if you're analyzing them, not only on an emotional level, but taking them apart from a technical perspective. I feel like those sort of add to your mental library. And I think I've never deliberately tried to borrow from anything that I've seen, but I would not be surprised if things that I've taken have subconscious elements of the things that I've seen. I don't know if, if, uh, I would guess that that's probably true for most people. Yeah. I mean, you would hope that's true because that's why you immerse yourself in the stuff that you do. So it does have an effect. Yeah. So you, in a way you're saying, I'm doing this you know, for creative inspiration and it's affecting me in this very specific way. You're hoping that you know, that's the exact effect. And that's, I guess, part of why I prefer not to look at wedding photography because when I go into a wedding... I don't want to have other people's wedding images in my head. I want to look at, you know, I want to see the things that are inspiring to me that are outside of that genre. So when I'm presented with a wedding scenario, I'm thinking about the lighting and composition and interaction and where I want things in the frame rather than, you know, having a, because the way I describe it is when I see things and I put the camera to my eye and I kind of have an idea of how I want things to look and then, I described it, I think, on my bio is when things fall into place, it's like a bell goes off. And I'm not, the kind of creativity that I have is I don't have preconceived ideas I want things to look. I recognize them as they're happening. And so I don't think that's a better skill or a worse skill. It's just that's the way that my mind works. I don't have, you know, I don't have preconceived ideas about how I want to set things up. And so... It's more the ability to recognize things as they're happening. and so. Do you shoot a lot? Do I shoot a lot? Yeah, like do you, do you shoot a lot of frames at a wedding? Oh, I think I'm probably relatively reserved compared to some of the people I've heard. I mean, I would say, you know, with this, let's say I'm shooting a six, we'll just keep the math easy. A six-hour wedding, I might shoot 1,000 to 1,200 images. And I typically would edit that down to four or 500 that I give the client because I think anything above that is sort of mind numbing, but you know, that's changed since the film days where now when I'm shooting all medium format, 
you know, Hasselblad where I'm getting 12 frames per roll. I remember giving clients 150 image proof books and they were perfectly satisfied with that. And that was the expectation. I think things are a little different now, but uh, I feel like one of the positive carryovers for me to address your actual question is shooting film, whether it was medium format with 12 frames or, you know, film where I was, at 36 or 37, depending on how I loaded it, that caused me to be careful about when I tripped the shutter and being careful about choosing my moments and not just, you know, holding down the shutter and hoping to find something later. And I think, you know, when you spend as much time in front of the computer as working photographers do, you realize the sort of folly of that mindset where it's much easier to pick your moment while you're shooting rather than to try to find it while you're editing because shooting is a very fun, inspirational time and sitting in front of the computer is can be very difficult, especially like I don't have the longest attention span. So for me, I get sort of paralyzed where, you know, I'll have two images that are slightly similar and the bride's smile might be slightly different. And I get very attached to the lighting and composition. And so I'll think, oh, you know, this has this perfect balance and it has this dynamic tension and this, you know, line is going into the corner and the light's perfect. And then I'll bring in my wife kind of as a tiebreaker and she'll go, oh no, this is the good one. You know, and it wasn't necessarily the one that I would gravitate to, but I think that she's probably more likely to be right because she's going to look at it more like a client would. You know, I get attached to the feeling that I get from it and you have to remember you need to satisfy yourself in order to make this fun and exciting and to continue to get more work. But you also need to make sure that you're doing work that's inspiring and flattering to your clients. And so, you know, I think this is an interesting point to quickly just stop here for a second, because I'm the same. So if I'm doing an edit and I'm sure this is for the listener too, if I'm doing an edit and I'm the same as you, I'm looking at the lighting and the composition and maybe to some degree, what I think other photographers would think about this shot, you know, because I like it, I'm sure they will too. And I don't like that I feel that, but it is there. But then I'll show Linda, my wife, the photo or Tennille in the studio and they'll say, hey, what are you doing? You've got to go for the other one where the bride's smiling. Look at that smile. She's going to love that other photo. Shouldn't we be satisfying ourselves as the artist? Well, I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive, but I do think that that's a great question. It also causes you to have this sort of existential wondering about, you know, are you leaving your, you know, meaning you and I or anybody, are we leaving our best work on the floor? Are we, you know, that's what we used to say with film, but like, am I deleting the raw files of my best work and presenting things that I think, because that's the difficult thing about how the human mind works. We respond to things in very emotional ways, but we think we're being logical. So you go into let's say I would assume it's the same where you live. So when you go into a place to buy shampoo and there aren't five kinds, there are a hundred and there's no way that you can make an informed, educated decision about which is the quote unquote best for you because they all essentially do the same thing. They clean your hair. You're making a decision based on, what color the bottle is and maybe what it smells like if you take the time to open it. But in the back of your mind, 
the brain convinces itself that you've made the right choice based on a logical decision, but there's no way for that to actually be the case. So the way that I take that observation into how I edit photographs is I, and this is very time consuming and it's not anything that I recommend. <laughs> it's uh, I go in, I import my raw file. So let's say I'm done with the wedding. I come home, no matter what time it is, I back everything up. I make copies, I back it up to another drive, and then I back it up to a third drive. So no matter what kind of catastrophic failure there is, I'm covered. Then, usually the next day, I'll import it into Lightroom. And then once I've gone through making my edits, you know, I go through and I keep a master of everything, but I go through and actually delete raw files. So I'm deleting the raw files so my pool of images gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I will typically go through. So the part of my idiotic workflow that I don't recommend to anybody is I will go through the entire wedding three or four times because the images that hit me the first time are often the ones that I end up liking the best. And so I will go through them and go through them and then, you know, sort of like the conversation that, you know, or the decision that you made with your wife, you know, you'll go through like the third time, depending on your mood, because every time you look at these, you're thinking about them in a different way because of where you are in your life at that particular moment. So let's say the third or fourth time I'm going through it, you look at an image and you're like, why did I leave this in here? You know, or this is awful. Like what, what, what am I doing with this? And then, you know, conversely, you'll see something like, wow, how did I miss this? This is great. And I think a lot of that has to do with what sort of headspace you're in while you're editing, but also when you see these things in context, you know, the smaller and smaller you get these things down to, they each have a different importance. And so the philosophy of editing is something that, you know, there's a million ways to do it. And I could talk about my way forever, but, you know, I don't think it's necessarily very interesting, but it's the way that I've been doing it. And it's the way that's been getting me the results that I want. And so there might be a much better way of doing it than there has to be a better way because <laughs> I spend way too much time doing it, but I'm very attached to doing it myself. And that's, you know, to segue to a very different topic, that's something that I would never want to farm out to another person. I'm very attached to my editing process because I like things to look the way that I want them to look. And that's a huge part of being a photographer and is having a consistent body of work and having something that gives someone a reason to hire you. You know, if your work looks like everybody else or you're farming out your post-processing, you know, you don't have full control of your creative process and you know, that might be something that appeals to people who do a very high volume of work, but that's not something that interests me because when I was shooting film, I had a very specific way of working. Now that I'm shooting digitally, mostly I have a very specific way of working and I'm getting the same result and that's why I do it. It sounds like you would never have staff. You would never have anyone touch your images apart from you. No, you know, and I did, there was a period, I think it was, probably 2007 or 2008 where I had some circumstances in my personal life that required me to, you know, I got a little behind based on my volume and I brought in someone who 
I left this person kind of piece my work down, you know, get down to doing the basic edits of cutting down the things that they didn't feel were necessary. But it was a very scary thing to me. And I only did it for one or two weddings. And I just felt like I would rather suffer through <laughs> the process myself rather than to, I just was not comfortable giving that up. Fair enough. You mentioned the two photos before and you called your wife in to have a look and she was sort of the, the tiebreaker. What did you do with each image? Did they both make the cut? Did one get deleted? Well, what I do, and I do that with some regularity, I would say it probably happens maybe, you know, once a wedding, depending on the, our schedules. So usually I will sit and agonize with it myself, but if I'm unable to break that tie or I don't feel like I want to present both of them, I will get my wife to give me a second opinion. I would say 90% of the time I trust her judgment in those instances, because again, like when you've gone through these three or four times, you start to form attachments and those attachments might not be valid because you were there. You know, I was there. I remember how I felt. And if it was a difficult moment, and this is another thing that's fascinating about photography to me, especially when you're dealing with something that's happening in real time. Like let's say you're looking at a photograph and everything about that photograph reminds you of the effort that you put into the photograph. That's not the same as a successful photograph because, you know, whether it's me or you, you're looking at that moment, you're thinking in the back of your mind, either consciously or subconsciously. I remember how lucky I felt to nail the focus. You know, his eye is perfectly in focus. He's smiling. You know, this light was exactly the way I wanted. Everything fell into place. And you think about how great you felt when you were taking it, but that clouds your judgment because you're not looking at the final photograph in the, the same way that a client would or anybody else would. You're intrinsically biased. And so I think some of those biases are positive and some of those are sort of cloud the process. And so there are several biases in the process. The photographer looking at the or taking the picture has one way of looking at it. The client or the person in the photograph has one way of looking at it. And then a third party who is, let's say, your photograph is on a gallery wall, the someone who just comes in off the street is going to look at it in entirely a third way. They don't have any attachment to it. They're not the photographer. They're not the subject. The person looking at it is going to have yet another reaction. And so I think my experience has taught me that I'm prone to those biases and bringing in <laughs> I just sort of trust that the time that I decide to bring in my wife as a tiebreaker is when I feel like I'm, you know, being emotionally honest and saying, look, I literally can't decide which of these. Can you tell me as a disinterested third party, which of these gives you an emotional reaction or which one of these resonates with you? I think that's why I'm more inclined to trust her judgment than my own when it comes down to those situations. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It does, it does. Before we continue, I wanted to say a big thanks to today's sponsor, shotkit.com. The site has been put together amazingly well. It is one of the best websites you'll ever visit in regard to photography. And it's all been done by Mark from Gold Hat Photography in Sydney. 
He is an amazing photographer in his own right, an incredibly talented wedding photographer. I interviewed him for the podcast over at photobizx.com, all about his business. But the site that he's created over here at ShotKit is simply incredible. It really is. If you'd like to find out the type of gear your favorite photographers are using and how they're using the gear, you can see it all at shotkit.com. There are beautiful photos, not only of the gear these photographers are using, you'll also find examples of their beautiful work, their philosophy, the way they approach their photography, a little bit about how they use their gear. And like I said, it is laid out so, so well. For such a big site, it's one of the easiest ones I've found to navigate and find my way around. If, for example, you click on the photographer's menu, there's a long list of different genres of photography from automobile, concert, commercial, fashion, fine art, Instagram, landscape, lifestyle, wedding, portrait, photojournalism, sports, etc. You click on one of those links, it'll take you to that genre of photography and the best photographers in that genre and highlight the gear that those photographers are using. Now, while Mark has been steadily building up the shotkit.com website, he's also been adding some amazing resources and products. And I've got to say, I am a purchaser of a few of them. His More Brides book is an absolute killer. It is, it really is the perfect complement to photobizx.com, the podcast. Mark has put together the most comprehensive resource for wedding photographers looking to build a better photography business. If there was a book that I had written on wedding photography business, this would be the book. And after having purchased and read through that book, it's not even worth thinking about writing another one. It's, uh, it is that comprehensive. And the results that Mark and my listeners over at PhotoBizX are getting from what he teaches in that book are phenomenal. I've had listeners reporting rising up through the ranks in Google generating more leads, more bookings, getting better sales. One of the best things, and I have talked about this on the other podcast, is a strategy that is a little gray hat, I guess you'd say. It's, uh, I guess it's treading that fine line between ethical and non-ethical, but it's a really cool way to discount your photography without looking like you're discounting your photography. Because I know what it's like as a photographer. You want to fill up the weekends that are free, but you don't want to appear desperate. And that's how you do look if you discount your photography. So Mark has come up with a strategy and that is just one chapter in this book on how you can discount your photography without it looking like you're discounting. I know it sounds counterintuitive. It's a little bit sneaky, but it's very, very cool. There's so much on this site. Like I said, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I think that what you really need to do is head over to shotkit.com, go and check it out, see how easy it is to navigate, have a look at the resources that are available. Mark has a start here page that will step you through how to find what you're looking to find. There's some background information on Mark, his business and why he started the site. You'll also find links to the Shotkit book. Volume 2 has just been released and it's a whopping 250 pages. There's videos and interactive PDFs that go along with that. I don't know how he finds the time to do what he does and to make it look so good at the same time. So again, check it out, shotkit.com. I really do believe it is the perfect partner to photobizx.com and the Photography Experiment podcast. Let me change tack slightly here. Let's 
talk about your website because you said that it's doing the job. You're putting the work out there that you like to produce and it's attracting the kind of client that likes what you're producing and that's why they're booking you. This is a little bit of a hypothetical and it'll be difficult to answer this truthfully or perfectly well, but what if the client stopped coming because they didn't like your work? Would you change the way you were shooting? No, I mean, I think that would be, that's a great question. I think that is one of the things that I think a lot of people struggle with. And because one of the hardest things about being self-employed is I have a responsibility for not only myself, but my entire family, you know, mortgage, cars and food and everything else that we need to pay for. So I think the one of the most problematic ramifications of that is it can hold people back from leaving their comfort zone and really pushing themselves creatively is that nagging feeling in the back of your mind like I need to you know I've never thought this consciously but I mean you have that feeling like I need to do work that people care about you know and it doesn't matter how wonderful you are if well it does if you're doing work for yourself but if you're doing it as a living you need to really touch both of those things. You need to do work that satisfies you, but it has to bring in clients. And so your original question, you know, I think what happens when people go through those dry periods, and we've all had them. You know, I have periods where I had one recently where everyone you talk to, they want a book and it just seems like work. You'll get like five, six gigs will just drop on you and you feel like the king of the world. And then, you know, there are times in the winter where it feels quiet. Your mind plays tricks on you and you start to feel suspicious about whether or not you're, quote unquote, really have it anymore. And we as artists tend to be emotionally volatile people. So I think those sort of feelings get exaggerated, too, and it becomes very difficult to get a realistic sense of really, I think it's easy to sort of get the euphoria of feeling like you're doing great and also to feel that sort of downward spiral of feeling like you're no longer appealing to anybody. And I think the it's very likely in those scenarios that when things are going great, you feel like all I need to do is do what I'm doing because it's all get more of the same. And if you're not successful at that particular month, which happened, you feel like Maybe I need to do this. And I think that is probably the stepping off point where a lot of people feel like maybe I need a workshop, you know, (laughs) honestly, like in 2003, I don't know if that's what I was feeling, but I mean, I certainly, I had plenty of work. I do remember the feeling of, yeah, I think the volume of work was so high that I wasn't as satisfied creatively. And I felt like I wanted a new direction. And one of the great things about being self-employed too is you can help control, assuming you're doing a consistent you know, level of work, which is the sort of hallmark of professionalism. You know, all you need to do to regulate your workflow is you charge more, you will likely book fewer people, but you'll make more per wedding. And if you charge less, you're going to appeal to a broader group of people, but you're also throwing yourself into a broader pool also where you're less likely to be differentiated. So I think one of the hardest things when you're in that emotional state is making sure that you don't change. Um, well, that's not accurate. You always want to keep changing and always want to look at things in a new way. And that's one of the things that I do for myself. I think the temptation that needs to be fought in those 
moments is feeling like you need to alter your style in a way that makes it have a broader appeal. I think that almost always will backfire. All right. It sounds to me like you would do the best you can to stick to your guns and just try and progress your own photography and stay true to your style rather than trying to adapt to suit the client or the market. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that really, if you look at anyone successful or anyone that has a unique market, the more you have something unique to sell, the greater likelihood that it will feel desirable and exclusive. I think there was a, I don't want to stop making music analogies, but there's one from an actor. I don't remember if it was Jack Nicholson or someone like that, but I think the essence of it was essentially you need to give someone a reason to hire you. Like if you're casting a movie and if you are acting in a way that isn't different from anybody else, why should that person hire you? If you're doing unique photography and you're looking at the world in a way that not everyone else is looking at, because I think that's a huge social pressure right now with social media, is it's never been easier to borrow someone else's style. It's never been easier to imitate the work of others because there's so much photography. Like there's more, I don't remember the exact statistic, but there's more photography produced in a year than the entire history of photography, you know, and it's just, it's growing exponentially because of social media. So we're all saturated by images and it's the things that really stand out that grab your eye. And I think that that is the exact kind of thing that that's how you grab clients is having a unique perspective. And that's brings off a completely different topic that, you know, I don't know if you want to go into, but I do feel like a lot of wedding magazines are sort of killing the industry too. You know, certainly not business-wise. They're the creativity. Yeah, yes, because they're helping make the photographer more homogenous. Where, for example, ten years ago, I was sitting down with a Seattle Bride magazine and physically getting them black and white fiber-based prints from film, and you know, having them. Well, this was actually longer than ten years ago, but like you know, having them go through them and like holding them and looking at them and being excited about them. And now the process is with magazines. If you look at any, I don't know if the magazines in Australia are like this, but there's real wedding sections where they will have, if you look at them, very, very uniformly chosen photographs where there's a photograph of the bride and groom in a field and they're in the middle of it. And there is a detail shot of the invite or the table setting. And there's a shot of the first dance and there might be a shot of the kiss. And they're, you know, bride coming down the aisle, like very, very standard shots. And in fact, if you look at some of the magazines, they might have eight to 10 of these exact weddings. You know, the photographer is different, but the photographers in those let's say there's 10 different weddings in the magazine. Those photographers might all have 10 different styles, but the magazines are choosing, these editors are choosing images that make the photographers look more alike rather than different, which is the exact opposite of what you want to do when you're trying to create a unique niche for yourself. Well, what do you do as a photographer? Because I know that the bride is getting told they have to find this kind of photographer. That's what's trendy. That's what's modern. But what do you do as a photographer to stay different? Well, that's, that's hard to say because I, as someone who shoots mostly black and white, a lot of magazines won't touch black and white. You know, they just don't like it. They don't like the way it looks in print. 
and they might feel differently if it's an online-based magazine. But the idea of something like Pinterest was so foreign 10 years ago where, you know, I'm shooting a wedding this weekend. The bride has a Pinterest thing and those are, she's showing me the kind of things that she likes and that's great. But there's so many ways of, you know, looking at what other people do. And so I think to the real weddings topic, either you don't submit to those and you go to online sources or you, you know, keep sending them the stuff that you really like. And if they don't publish it, you know, maybe one day they will, or you just have to go to a different source. But I think because of the world we live in, you know, 10, 15 years ago, those things in print had a lot more impact than they do now too, where there's just so many sources of photography. And again, you know, all the ones I mentioned between Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, people are so bombarded with choices now that I think it's more important than ever to have something unique to say. And I think that kind of to go full circle, that's really maybe one of the challenges with workshops is creating more people, you know, doing the same work is not doing the industry any favors. Yeah. Well, let me ask you two last questions. And the first one, it's a yes and no answer, which you might struggle with. What if an editor of a magazine calls you, Bradley, and they say, hey, we want to feature this wedding. This is a gorgeous wedding. You've sent us black and white files. We want the color files. Would you do it? I don't think I would. It would depend on the source and it would depend on how deeply, you know, I was attached to that particular presentation, I guess. It's hard for me to say that's a difficult hypothetical because my gut reaction is no, because I don't want to represent myself as anyone other than I am. And I look at things the way I look at them. And that's through from shooting to post-production I want them to look a certain way. And I guess I consider myself lucky that that scenario hasn't come up. I think most likely I would walk away from it because I would, it's sort of like the equivalent of what's happened. You know, I've done over 600 weddings. and I think this has probably only happened two or three times where I'm hired by the bride or the bride and groom. And then a few days before the wedding, the mother of the bride will give you a four or five page just detailed list of like all these must have shots. And what's funny in a tragic sort of way is you feel like you're no longer you, you know, you were hired to be you. That's why the bride was drawn to you. She found your website, your pictures spoke to her and then she hires you. And then someone completely separate from the process other than, you know, their financial interest is saying, these are the shots that I have to have or that my daughter has to have. And then you're no longer you, you know, you're no longer pursuing your creative vision. You're working off a checklist. So in some cases you're literally not looking at what's happening in front of you. You're looking off to see like, did I get a shot of uncle Bob? dancing with Aunt Sarah, you know, rather than, um, it's sort of like, you know, the sort of disconnect that people have walking around the city, staring at their cell phone rather than looking around, you know, at the wonderful things in front of them, whether that's good or bad is everyone has their own opinion of it. That example of the mother coming in, you know, a few days before, that's a better example of my question than my question was of using the magazines because that's a lot tougher thing to handle. So what do you say if that happens this weekend with this week's wedding, the mother 
emails or calls you and says, Bradley, this is my shot list. I'm paying for this wedding. These are the shots I want. What's the conversation you have with her, if any? Well, that's a great question. And so I will give you two brief answers to the best of my ability. The way that I answer it lately or in the last 10 years is very different from the way that I dealt with the very first time because the very first time it happened to me, I didn't have the confidence, you know, to, to rock the boat. So when it happened to me the first time, I sort of kind of emotionally collapsed and just thought, you know, now I'm just a guy pushing a button. You know, I'm not, I'm not me. There's nothing unique about the way I'm doing this. And so I thought, well, that's not entirely true. What I'm doing is I can still meet this list and do it in my way, but I'm still completely derailed. And so the first time it happened, I did the best of my ability of getting those. But I did have a disclaimer and said, you know, my way of working is to capture things as they're happening. And so I will make every attempt at doing this, but I certainly can't guarantee that I can get these. And I don't think that the mother was particularly pleased with my answer, but the way that, you know, the last time it happened was probably, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. And I just said, I'm sorry, I was hired by the, or contracted by the bride in order to shoot in a specific way. And so my obligation or my allegiance is to satisfying her. And so, you know, these are the kind of shots that I will be, you know, probably the kind of things that I'm going to be getting anyway, but I can't work off a list because that will prevent me from getting what I was hired to do. And so in essence, it's just sort of a similar answer, but with a very different level of confidence and at a very different level of responsibility, you know, where I feel like when you're just getting started, your goal is just to continue getting more work, you know? So when you get your first wedding, like I remember mine, I was terrified. I had no confidence. All I wanted to do was get through it and hopefully create some good work. And then when it was successful, I went through this bad, unproductive mindset of thinking, well, what do people want? You know, that is sort of like I was giving myself that stupid list. That was the exact wrong thing to do. And luckily, that was sort of self-correcting. And I realized what I need to do is fill my portfolio with the things that I like. And it sounds self-serving, but really, that's the best thing that you can do because that's what's going to get you the kind of clients you want. And so ultimately, the goal that we all have as self-employed artists is I'm satisfying myself I'm pushing myself. I'm continuing to do work that is inspiring to me and resonates with me. And I'm getting great clients who love what I do and appreciate me exactly for being me. And so they tend to be the kind of clients who they leave you alone. You know, they hire you, they trust you, and they leave you alone to do your process rather than to micromanage you because that prevents you from being you. And that's the one thing, like if you could, you know, quote unquote, educate certain clients who don't book you about how to get the best thing from their photographer, that might be one of the things that I would tell them is to hire someone you trust. And that would be true of any vendor, you know, you don't want the, it's funny because I had this happen to me or I saw it happen. I worked at a wedding where the videographer 
promised what was called a same-day edit. And what this meant was, and so they had several people working on this, so the things that they had shot earlier in the day that they would present as a video for the couple at their own reception before the night was even over. And then they presumably did a final version, you know, later. Now, the video that I saw during the reception was amazing. It was great and it was tear-jerking and really beautifully done. And these were people that really, you know, did a wonderful job and they were at the top of their craft. However, during that process, I saw you know, this guy frantically working to do this. And uh, there were kind of two people working in tandem because someone had to keep shooting while the other person was editing. And while this person was editing, the bridesmaid would come over and a groomsman would come over and a dad would come over and make suggestions like, oh, you know what you need to do? And video is very (laughs) different from still photography. You know, like you're looking at the same compositional quality, but you have things have a flow and you're dealing with audio. So it's very different. So I saw this guy struggling with computer problems and it just looked like hell. Yeah. It just did not. It was like, I remember thinking I I might've even said out loud, like, I hope I never have to do that. (laughs) I, I think that's a completely different part of the brain. And I have a lot of respect for people that do that, but I just, it's not me. I struggle over this two pictures way too long. Can you imagine I had to deal with moving? Mate, this has been an absolute blast for me. It's been fascinating and interesting, and I could keep talking to you for hours. Where is the best place for the listener to check out your work? Well, my website, which I am usually updating regularly, is bradleyhanson.com, and then that has links to my social media, where I usually post highlights on Facebook, and I have two Instagram accounts. One is personal, if you want to the issue of my life and then the other instagram account is mostly wedding and portrait work and some landscapes that i take with my camera and i have a twitter account but i do tend to post to my blog in batches so like i will go long periods of time where there's very little and then i might post several weddings in a row and i completely redid my website just a little over a year ago and i actually decided to scrap everything so i killed everything. And that was scary and liberating at the same time. But I just decided, you know, everything I'm doing now is better than what I was doing yesterday. So I want to just start fresh. And so I decided to just post new weddings in my blog. And that's, I think has worked really well for me because I always think what I'm doing now is the best thing that I'm doing. You know, that's a very satisfying feeling. And I hope it always feels that way. For sure. I'm going to add links to the show notes and I'll add links to all the things that you mentioned and where people can find you online and obviously to your blog and your social media accounts. The listener can find them at photobizx.com forward slash TPX11. And like I said, I'll have links to all those there. The last thing, Bradley, you didn't mention your upcoming workshop, mate. Where is that going to be? (laughs) (laughs) It's just between myself and I and it's mostly (laughs) going to be on how to choose between two very similar photographs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> enthralling enthralling mate thanks so there's much no admission fee <laughs> in fairness to the participants there will be no admission fee so not on some remote island in asia in the pacific yeah i'll, I'll come up with a good location i'll get back to you <laughs> bradley thanks mate it's been a pleasure my pleasure thanks for having me 
Just before we close out today's show, I had a follow-up email from Bradley after the interview that I recorded with him, and he says, the only answer I would have changed slightly is I would reject being published in a magazine that wanted to convert my black and white images to color images because it's just not useful to be promoted if the magazine are really promoting their version of you rather than who you really are. I totally get that. I totally agree with Bradley's views. I know that it would be tough if I was a newer photographer. I guess, you know, in Bradley's position now, for sure, you know, you say no, you're not changing my photography. It's st- if it's black and white, if I've shot it in black and white, that's the way it's got to stay. But I can imagine if you were a newer photographer, it might be difficult to say no to a magazine who's going to give you that exposure or that blog or whoever it is that might be featuring your work. But what Bradley says is so spot on. Unless they're promoting who you really are and who you want to be as a photographer, they may be doing you a disservice by changing the look of your photography. Alrighty, that is going to wrap up today's show. If you want to check out examples of Bradley's work, if you want to see links to anything and everything that he mentioned in the show, head over to photobizx.com forward slash TPX11. That's the number 11. So photobizx.com forward slash TPX11. You'll find links to anything and everything that he mentioned in the show. You'll also find links to shotkit.com. And I want to say thanks again to Shotkit for sponsoring today's episode, for making it possible. Get over there, check out one of the best websites on photography that you will find anywhere on the net, shotkit.com. All right, have an awesome week and I'll chat to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to photobizx.com.
Hey, mate, relax. We're all good. We're done. Thank you. All right. We're off air? Yeah, mate. Yeah, relax. All right. I can turn the air conditioning back on. Woo, it's hot in here. Oh. <laughs> I should leave this part in. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You could probably piece together a pretty good behind-the-scenes yeah. reel. <laughs> I think Especially so. Especially with Ian. Yeah. <laughs> yes.